You're listening to a sermon from the Langley Canadian Reformed Church. We hope you'll find it to be spiritually edifying. This afternoon we're going to deal with the opening line of the Apostles' Creed in Lord's Day 9, and to that end the scripture reading is taken from Isaiah chapter 45, the first 13 verses. This is what the Lord says to his anointed to Cyrus, whose right hand I take hold of to subdue nations before him and to strip kings of their armor, to open doors before him so that gates will not be shut. I will go before you and will level the mountains. I will break down gates of bronze and cut through bars of iron. I will give you the treasures of darkness, riches stored in secret places, so that you may know that I am the Lord. The God of Israel, who summons you by name. For the sake of Jacob, my servant of Israel, my chosen, I summon you by name and bestow on you a title of honor, though you do not acknowledge me. I am the Lord, and there is no other. Apart from me, there is no God. I will strengthen you, though you have not acknowledged me so that from the rising of the sun to the place of its setting, men may know there is none besides me. I am the Lord, and there is no other. I form the light and create darkness. I bring prosperity and create disaster. I, the Lord, do all these things. You heavens above rain down righteousness, let the clouds shower it down. Let the earth open wide, let salvation spring up, let righteousness grow with it. I, the Lord, have created it. Woe to him who quarrels with his maker, to him who is but a potsherd among the potsherds on the ground. Does the clay say to the potter, what are you making? Does your work say he has no hands? Woe to him who says to his father, What have you begotten? Or to his mother, What have you brought to birth? This is what the Lord says, the Holy One of Israel and its Maker. Concerning things to come, do you question me about my children or give me orders about the work of my hands? It is I who made the earth and created mankind upon it. My own hand searched out the heavens. I marshaled their starry hosts. I will raise up Cyrus in my righteousness. I will make all his ways straight. He will rebuild my city and set my exiles free, but not for a price or reward, says the Lord Almighty. We're also going to read from Article 12, the first paragraph, our confessional reference, the Belgic Confession. We believe that the Father, through the Word, that is, through His Son, has created out of nothing heaven and earth and all creatures when it seemed good to Him, and that He has given to every creature its being, shape, and form, and to each its specific task and function to serve its Creator. We believe that he also continues to sustain and governs them according to his eternal providence and by his infinite power in order to serve man to the end that man may serve his God. And then we turn to our text of this afternoon, which you find in Lord's Day 9. 
What do you believe when you say, I believe in God the Father Almighty, creator of heaven and earth, that the eternal Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who out of nothing created heaven and earth and all that is in them, and who still upholds and governs them by his eternal counsel and providence, is, for the sake of Christ, his Son, my God and my Father. In him I trust so completely as to have no doubt that he will provide me with all things necessary for body and soul, and will also turn to my good whatever adversity he sends me in this life of sorrow. He is able to do so as Almighty God, and willing also as a faithful Father. Thus far. I love the congregation of our Lord and our Savior, Jesus Christ. The other day, I was working in my study and my computer emitted a rather distinctive ring. It was Reverend Dong in China trying to Skype me. No, not scalp me, but Skype me. S-K-Y-P-E. And for those of you who are not up on this kind of thing, Skype is a special computer program that allows you to speak to anyone, anywhere around the world for nothing. All you do is you download the program, you go out and you buy a cheap headset with a microphone, and you're in business. And so it was that the Reverend Dong and this line was keeping me up to date on the latest developments that he had experienced. And as usual, there were a lot of developments, but there was one that I thought had a particular bearing on this afternoon and this afternoon's sermon. For in his conversation, he related that a member of the Chinese Reformed Church from here in the Fraser Valley was in China on a rather extended stay. This elderly lady decided to attend an underground church and the members there were casting about for good Christian study material. Only they were having a hard time finding anything that was really suitable. Having something in her possession, she photocopied a page of it and she distributed it the following Sunday. The members read it and they couldn't contain their enthusiasm. Immediately they asked for more. The following week she came with a few more pages, and again the members expressed great delight in what they were reading and demanded to know whether or not there was more to this document. The next week she came with the whole document, and the members read it through from one end to the other, and they were ecstatic. They said that next to the Bible, they now had a most prized possession. So what was it? Well, it was the Chinese translation of the Heidelberg Catechism. Some time ago, the Urban Mission Committee gave Reverend Dong the mandate to produce a new translation of the Heidelberg Catechism because... All of the old and existing ones were linguistically problematic. And so a new, improved translation was made, printed, and now it is being greeted in China with a great deal of 
excitement. The Chinese compare it to the discovery of a new treasure. Now, why do I tell you that story? Well, it's to highlight the fact that something like the catechism, which we have been using for centuries, and perhaps some of you even say we're getting kind of tired of it, is experiencing a whole new lease on life on the other side of the globe. And really, really, is it any wonder? Last Sunday afternoon, I pointed you to answer 21 of the catechism to its marvelous way of defining and describing true faith. And I even recommended to you to commit this one to writing because it's like good medicine that helps you deal with the ups and the downs of life and daily living. Well, beloved, it's the same, you can say, with answer 26 of Lord's Day 9. I dare say it too represents a great formulation. It's a wonderful exposition of the opening line of the Apostles' Creed. And so let's stop and examine it for a few moments. I preached to you on the theme, the church confesses that her faith is grounded in God the Father. And we shall see that this confession centers on a most sublime subject, calls for a most rousing response, and rests on a most beautiful basis. Well, beloved, we all know the majestic opening line of the Apostles' Creed, I believe in God the Father Almighty, the Creator of heaven and earth. As a matter of fact, we just sung it together in a rhymed version a few moments ago. Yes, and we're also quite familiar with this particular Lord's Day, this particular line and its explanation. Usually when we try to explain Lord's Day 9, we explain what it means that God is the creator. And then as well, we tend to say things about other theories of origin, like, for example, evolution. And yet, beloved, it's striking. It's striking that when the catechism begins its explanation of the opening line of the creed, it doesn't start at all by referring to God as creator. Instead, it begins its answer with the words that the eternal Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Now, why does it do that? Why does it do that also seeing that later at the end of the sentence it says, for the sake of Christ, his Son, my God, and my Father? Why this double reference to Christ? Why a reference to him at the beginning and as well at the end of the sentence? Is this not a case of verbal overkill? Well, not at all. For look, beloved, what the authors of the Catechism want to make clear at the very outset is that this God that we're speaking about this afternoon, this Father, this Almighty, this Creator, is first and foremost the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. 
In other words, this is not just any God or any Father that we are speaking about. This is not even the Divine Father. No, this is the God and Father of Christ. Quite simply put, what it is saying is that the only way to see and to approach the creator of the heavens and the earth and the universe and everything in it and on it and above it is in Christ. It's saying never separate it all from Christ. Never consider the creator apart from Christ. Never think or speak about him without considering how Christ did both. And you know, in that connection, it's very instructive to look at how the Lord Jesus himself so often speaks. I take, for example, the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 5 to 7. Do you know how many references to the Father there are in this so-called one sermon? There are 17 direct references. Chapter 5, 16, let your light shine before men that they may praise your good deeds and praise your Father in heaven. 5.45, that you may be sons of your Father in heaven. 5.48, be perfect therefore as your heavenly Father is perfect. 6 verse 1, you will have no reward from your Father in heaven. 6 the verses 4 and 6, then your Father who sees what is done in secret will reward you. And 6 verse 8, do not be like them, for your Father knows what you need before you ask Him. And so the list goes on and on. Christ makes all of these constant references to His Father. Yes, and then if you think that Matthew's gospel is filled with them, you haven't seen anything yet, turn to the gospel, for example, of, of John, and you find it becomes a veritable river or stream. Our Lord is always talking about and to His Father. He's always thinking about Him. He always has Him on His lips and on His heart and on His mind. And what is now the result of such an approach? Is that when he thinks of creation, and when he thinks of the origin of creation, he, he never ever does so in an impersonal, theoretical, or even I dare say theological fashion. No, creation is always seen as the work of the Father. It's the Father who made it happen. It's the Father who brought everything into being out of nothing. It's the Father who simply spoke. And it appeared. Without Him, it simply wouldn't be there. And there's no dispute here. There's no need even to discuss the matter. God the Father did it. Nowhere does the Lord Jesus see any need to elaborate on this matter or to defend His Father and His great creative power and work. It's simply assumed as the most obvious and self-evident truth in all 
the world. It's not even worth debating. Out of nothing, the eternal Father of our Lord Jesus Christ created heaven and earth and all that is in them. And if you think of it, is that not a sublime statement? Has anything ever been said about creation that is more majestic, more wonderful, more simple and more direct? It's saying creation is not an accident. It's not the result of a very haphazard kind of development that's been going on for billions of years and that will continue to unfold No one knows how. The world and the universe in which we live is not the product of chance, luck, fate, or what have you. No, this world is the world of the Father of Jesus Christ and of my Father. This is my Father's world. It's filled with purpose. It's filled with intention. It's his personal handiwork. It's filled, therefore, with meaning and significance. Yes, and all of that is lost. When you read and when you believe too much National Geographic stuff, oh, I admit its pictures and its diagrams are beautiful, But you know, its fundamental message is so utterly depressing and demeaning. For what is the great presupposition on which rests the structure of National Geographic? It is that this world is nothing more than a big accident is that there is no purpose really to anything. And there actually is no real difference between you and the animals and you and the birds and you and the fish. You just evolved a little further and a little higher. And it is that no one knows what the future holds or where exactly is going. Now imagine that kind of a mindset as the basis for for daily living. Well, many people have taken it over. You ever asked yourself, why is our society more and more consumed with the pursuit of pleasure? Because if all of this is true, then there really is nothing else to live for but yourself and for today. God is dead. Or if he's not dead, he doesn't matter. So eat, drink, be merry, tomorrow you die anyway. What a sad, sad way to live. But yet conversely, how blessed are we who, who know the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. What a benefit that we may teach our children about Him and His great creative power. 
What a comfort that we may tell them that He still, even today, upholds and governs heaven and earth by His eternal counsel and providence. Life is not a case of Russian roulette. Nor is the universe like a drunken sailor careening out of control and heading for disaster. No, our Father in Christ guides and leads and directs all things. Nothing happens outside of His will. Well, beloved, when you know and when you believe all of this, then surely it also calls for a response, a fitting, even rousing response. Yes, an answer 26 speaks of that too. Look at the second sentence of the answer and the words, In him I trust so completely as to have no doubt that he will provide me with all things necessary for body and soul. What's the key word here? Surely it's the word trust. What's the central idea here? Is it not about complete and utter trust? Is it not about trust without any doubt even? I would call that supernatural, even rousing trust. It's the kind of trust that nothing can sink or or sway. It's the kind of trust that enables you to weather the most awful of storms and the most depressing of events. You may have poverty, sickness, loneliness, strife, persecution, all kinds of stress and distress in your life. But if you have this trust, and you have an antidote, you have a counterbalance, Something that enables you to go on, to go on even in hope. And in that connection, I think of a number of people. There's Noah. Noah who gets a humanly ridiculous assignment from God. Build an ark on dry land. And no doubt, all of his neighbors laughed. And they spread the word that Noah had lost it. Noah is building his arky because he's barky. And there's Abraham, who gets told by God to move, fine, but then to move and not to know where you're going? What's that but a ridiculous message? And no doubt people snickered and they said, you know, Noah, he's packing his bags, he's packing his tents, he's moving out and he doesn't even know where he's going. Simply because he heard a voice. And there's Moses leading the children of Israel straight into the waters of the Red Sea and between the waters. And the people saying, doesn't he know that people who can't swim drown? And there's Joshua leading the Israelites around Jericho, day after day, time after time, 
A whole week the people march and on the seventh day they go round and round and round seven times. And no doubt some of the people thought, what in the world is this national aerobics class? And beloved, these names can so easily be multiplied sevenfold, if not seven times sevenfold. Read Hebrews 11. And you have a long list of people who are often dismissed as madmen and silly women, dreamers, deranged, deluded. But you know, there's one thing they all had in common, and that is they trusted in God. They firmly believed that God, the Father Almighty, creator of the heavens and the earth, would fulfill His word. That everything he said and everything he promised would come to pass. No matter how ridiculous or unlikely or impossible. They were firmly convinced that God would see us through to the end. And truly, beloved, this is a most wonderful quality. Examples of it are sprinkled not only through the pages of Holy Scripture, but also throughout the history of the Christian church and even throughout our lives today. Why we exhibit this trust every day. Think of it, every time you step into your car or get on an airplane, what is that but an act of trust? Or what about financial matters? We we deal with banks, and, and some of us even give money to the banks or the credit unions to take care of. What's that? But another act of trust. And then let it be said that perhaps little children may sometimes be the best at this at all. Maybe you've seen it as well. A little boy climbs a tree and he goes up perhaps six, seven, or eight feet high. And someone comes along, holds out his hands, and invites him to jump, and he says, no, no. But mother or father come along, and they issue the same invitation. And he just leaps into space. He simply trusts that his father or his mother will catch him and will not allow him to hit the ground with a thud. Now that's trust. That's reliance. That's confidence. That's certainty. Yes, and that's what the catechism is speaking about. Only you could even say that here the trust factor runs Deeper. Now we're speaking here about deeper things and harsher realities. The catechism captures it all in that one word adversity. And you know that one word covers a host of things. And they're all bad. And they're all painful and distressing. And they all have to do with suffering. But yet even then, trust. It's possible. 
No, not homegrown trust, but divinely inspired trust. The kind that says, I don't know how I am ever going to get out of this terrible situation or to overcome it. But nevertheless, I know that my Heavenly Father is watching over me and leading me. And I remain convinced that one day He will transform this adversity of mine into benefit. It will turn into my good. Deep valleys call for deep trust. Ruinous situations call for a rousing response. The response of trust. Sound good? Sound convincing? How do you know it's true, though? You know, when preachers start to talk like this, some people get really skeptical. Because, you see, unfortunately, us preachers don't exactly have the best reputation for truthfulness and reliability. Just ask Ted Haggard. So how do you know what the preacher says, also what this particular preacher is saying to you this afternoon is true, and that I'm not some kind of a snake oil salesman? Well, I would say to you, you need to look beyond the preacher, and you need to hear what the preacher is saying. If he's telling you to trust in God on the basis of his own authority or experience, then you should run. But on the other hand, if he's telling you to trust in God because of Christ and more Christ, then you should stop, listen, and learn. And you know, that's what the catechism does. It says that there is this one and most beautiful basis, only one, for trusting in God the Father. And it has everything to do with Christ again. Answer 26 rests it all ultimately on the expression for the sake of Christ, His Son. Because of what Christ has done. He is my God. His Father is my Father. His promise of care and safekeeping is my promise of well-being. Beloved, it's the saving work of Christ that leads to our adoption and our blessing. Listen. You did not receive a spirit that makes you a slave again to fear, but you have received the spirit of sonship. The Spirit Himself testifies with our spirits that we are God's children. Listen. So you're no longer a slave, but a son. And since you are a son, God has made you also an heir. And listen. In love, He predestined us to be adopted as his sons and daughters through Jesus Christ. 
So, beloved, Christ makes us sons and daughters of God. Thanks to Christ, we have standing. We have rights. We are heirs. In other words, we have every reason to be filled with confidence and to stand firm and fast. And we have every reason to say with the concluding words of answer 26, He is able to provide for me and to turn good to me as Almighty God and willing also as a faithful Father. The God who has always been able because He is Almighty is now also willing as willing as a father. And who has made him willing? It is Christ. Christ alone. So, beloved, do not fear. Live close to your heavenly Father. Teach your children and your grandchildren to live close to him as well. Trust Him, love Him, serve Him, enjoy Him. And realize that He will never, ever leave you or forsake you. After all, He is a faithful Father. He is the faithful Father of His one and only Son, Jesus Christ. And of all of His many Adopted sons and daughters through Christ. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we come to you and we thank you. We thank you for the word and the promise of the gospel. We thank you that through Christ we may call you our Father. And that we may know that as our Father, you are both willing and able to provide for us and for all good. Hear us in Christ and receive our great thanks in him. Amen. This has been a sermon from the Langley Canadian Reformed Church. For more information, please visit us on the web at www.langleycanrc.org.